what we talked about last week is really the the foundation for today's discussion on sort of the three levels of healing. This is something that I want all 40 university students to be made very clear of from the beginning of our journey in 40 university, studying the curriculum, doing the practices. We're not just trying to heal on one level. Okay. There's not just one dimension we heal on, which is sort of the average way of thinking about healing is that, oh, I just have to heal myself. But actually, you're not a one-dimensional being, right? You're a multi-dimensional being. And so there are multiple dimensions of yourself that need attention and healing and purification. And so we call that the ascension spiral. Um, I won't go into the dynamics of that in, in this call, but it's showing the three levels we heal on, the, the gross level, the subtle level, and the causal level. That is body, mind, and spirit. So our our three bodies of consciousness are the three levels of purification. This is the uh, the teaching from Hinduism, mostly uh, Advaita Vedanta, the three bodies of consciousness, meaning when consciousness becomes individualized, that's the Christ that uh, ACIM talks about. The Son of God is pure consciousness individualized. When consciousness comes into form, that is the son of God, pure consciousness. So when our soul incarnates, it goes through the veil of forgetting, right? The veil of forgetting is the dream world in ACIM. So as consciousness goes through the veil of forgetting and into a human incarnation, it forgets that it's a multidimensional being. It forgets that it's eternal and one with God and it only sees what's right in front of it, right? Which is this body, this person that I'm born into. So it only sees the physical body because, you know, the subtle body is non-physical and the spiritual body is also non-physical. So the consciousness can't see the subtle body or the causal body. So it doesn't even know they exist. It just says, I'm a body, I'm a physical body and that's it. So that's where all the identification goes when consciousness becomes individualized through the veil, right? So in that sense, you know, we always say consciousness is the I am feeling that that inner knowing I exist. That's consciousness. That's you. That's what you are. So when I am dreams of separation, immediately that feeling I am will be projected onto forms right? Because it doesn't know itself anymore. So it doesn't know the I that is, it just knows the feeling of I and forms. So it just projects I onto everything. Yeah. And most initially the physical body, even as a, as a baby, as an infant growing up, we, we get familiar with our body first. It's the first thing we engage with. That's why babies are putting their hands in their mouth and tasting everything and licking everything. They're trying to get used to this weird, gross body that they've now found themselves in. And so consciousness in that sense, dreaming I'm the body is what creates ego. Yeah. Consciousness unknowingly creates the ego as it goes through separation through the veil. And that is why A Course in Miracles always says things like, you made the ego up. You made the whole world that you see up. Everything you see, you made it up in your mind. And you're like, uh, what? Of course I didn't make up the whole universe. It's already here. I'm just witnessing it and interacting with it. 
but that belief that you're just a body and only that body exists and is walking in a separate world, that's the idea that you made up. So in that way, we can see this kind of formula for the creation of the ego. Individualized consciousness plus the veil of forgetting equals the ego, yeah? Individualized consciousness plus the veil of forgetting equals ego. That's all the ego is. So consciousness makes it up, we could say sort of on accident. And then not remembering that it's eternally one with God, consciousness then has to fear the body's death as its own death, yeah? So whatever the body suffers, consciousness believes I am suffering or whatever the body could possibly suffer, I could possibly suffer from. So fears, traumas, all kinds of mental distortions become possible when individualized consciousness is wrongly identified with the body. So A Course in Miracles talks ad nauseum about you are not the body, you are more than the body, the body's not what you are. The I am the body idea is really all that the ego is. So this is how consciousness begins to awaken from the dream of separation, right? From the dream of forgetfulness and begin to remember what it is. It's the healing journey, right? The healing journey, we call it the ascension journey, is actually our journey of remembering, right? To heal is to remember who you are. You can't heal from something if you believe you really are a body that really was abused and abandoned. As long as you believe that is true about yourself, you can't heal it, right? It will always be a trauma. So you have to see yourself from heaven's eyes. You have to see the deeper dimension of who you are and identify with that. So healing is the catalyst for self-remembrance. That's why the creator makes the universe, goes into it and requires itself to go through this healing process because the healing process is really just the remembering process. To heal is to remember who you are. I'm not a body. I am an eternal spirit, one with God forever. And then that's how we ascend back into the empowerment of our true identity, our true nature. So as we heal, we will inevitably discover that there's really three dimensions of ourself we have to heal on. And that's how consciousness remembers that it's a multidimensional being. Because I'm not just experiencing um, distortions and challenges and pain on just the emotional level, but also in the thought level of the mind, and also in the spiritual level of karma and the causal body. There's three different areas of my being that need my attention. So these three bodies of consciousness that we heal on are really represented through the three states we experience, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. These are the three bodies of consciousness, meaning consciousness is operating at three levels and they are seen through the waking state, the dream state, and the deep sleep state. So in the waking state, we only see what? Physical body. In the dream state at night, when we're imagining ourselves as a dream character in a dream world, are we seeing the physical body? No. What are we really seeing? Just the contents of our mind. Everything in a dream is just your mind. So you're seeing the inside of your mind, the subtle body, in the dream state. 
But then what about deep sleep where there's just pure black, pure void, pure nothingness, no time, no space, no experience, just pure darkness. And then you're back into the waking state. What was that all about? Well, that's the spiritual body, the causal body. That's the void, right? Everything comes out of the void. Everything the creator makes is born out of the void. That's why the void is the feminine, the negative, the womb of God, where everything is birthed into manifestation from the void. So really the void is full of possibility, of infinite possibility, but the void itself is a non-physical expression of that possibility. So that's the field of consciousness, right? That we get into in a deep meditation when we're trying to do some kind of law of attraction technique. We're trying to visualize the future outcome we want and feel it, right? Where are we pulling from? Where are we getting this information from? Where are we getting the imagining from? the mental pictures and the feelings from, all from the void. It's all there in potential. So the void is what you are at the deepest level of consciousness, let's say. You are pure spirit without identity. And this, the spirit of what we are is the part of us that is burdened with the karma from lifetime to lifetime that has not been healed yet. So that's what the Catalyst Journal is for becoming aware of our karma through the life lessons that were being served. Yeah, that's the Catalyst Journal from last week. Unburdening our spirit from karma is causal purification. But here's the problem with the Catalyst Journal. If we haven't done any gross purification or subtle purification first, good luck doing causal purification, right? Good luck trying to see the deep spiritual lessons in your life when you're being triggered constantly and being drowned in your depression or your anxiety every day, when your mind is just constantly chattering and um, abusing you with thoughts and stories, good luck tuning into the subtleties of your life, right? There's too much chaos going on in the system. So maybe before we jump into the Catalyst Journal, we need to create a little bit of space within ourselves through gross purification and subtle purification. So if you're Let's say it this way. It's much better to begin with gross purification. That is emotional healing. We can call it shadow work. We could call it inner child work. It's much better to begin there and get some, get a bit of a grip on that type of healing first. How to process all my suppressed emotions, how to process a trigger, how to be in that trigger with space and awareness and love. That's the first real um, attribute we should practice cultivating, right? Because as we free up more space within us by releasing our suppressed emotions as they are triggered in us, then we can, we can gain the capacity to engage with our thoughts, right? We can begin healing our thought patterns now that we're not just being run by our emotions and the waves of emotions every day. You know, when, when the ego has got somebody to the place where that person's being totally run by their emotions, ego has a complete lockdown vice grip over their consciousness. There's no greater amount of control the ego can have over someone than when that person is completely run by their emotions, their triggers, right? And we see this in a huge way in our culture today, where it's like, 
almost seen as a virtue to be the most triggered, emotional, overreactive person in the group. The more triggered I am, the more righteous I am. And what we're gonna see today, you guys, is that actually that is true, not that you're more righteous, but that at the heart of every painful emotion, there is a celestial gem of divine truth, that there is virtue and purity and innocence behind every trigger, but we have to see it in order to truly love and accept that part of ourselves. So if we're only seeing the face value of the emotion, the pain, the anguish, the turmoil, and we're just lost in that reactivity, no healing is happening. So we have to develop the space to sit with those feelings and look deeper into them. That's what we're going to talk about today. So the, the practice of the three beliefs can be really difficult if we haven't gained the ability to sit with our pain and accept it and welcome it in and learn how to depolarize it with love, right? So I'm going to give you, let's call it a new addition to the three beliefs practice that I think will be greatly helpful in your facilitating of accepting these three negative emotions. Um, this is everything you're going to hear today is in the book I'm writing. And I've, I've been trying to reserve as much of the content in the book for the book. So I don't spoil everything, but if I feel like it's going to help you guys, I can't, I can't keep it in. So <laughs> I'm going to share this part of the book with you that the book will go way deeper into, of course, than today's lecture. But this is just such a helpful framework for practicing the three beliefs. And so I want to set this up with an analogy of the classic story of Beauty and the Beast, using the Beauty and the Beast story as our analogy for gross purification or accepting our emotions. Now, whenever we talk about shadow work or you know inner healing, there's really these two frameworks that we're given. We, we either hear, um, you need to learn how to let go. Letting go is the way you heal. Or we hear, you need to accept, you need to love and accept your negative emotions. So it's kind of like, all right, those are sort of two opposite things. Which one is more accurate or more helpful to look at this process through? Now, letting go, of course, doesn't mean let go of the emotion itself. It means let go of your resistance towards the emotion. But I personally think that because we're already so prone to bypassing and suppressing and resisting, using a negative term like letting go is probably could be a bit dangerous because the mind thinks, oh, let go of the pain, get rid of it, get rid of it. And it's actually the opposite of what we're trying to do. So letting go is a perfectly fine framework if that works for you. But I want to look at this through the acceptance framework. What does it mean to accept a negative emotion? Because to just let go of resistance is, of course, a great and important step forward. We have to let go of our resistance first. But if we're only practicing how to let go of resistance, how to just feel pain and negativity without, you know, resisting it, but we don't take the next step of actually embracing and loving and accepting the emotion as it is, then we haven't fully completed the healing process, right? Because emo love does not just not resist something. Love is doing more than just not harming or not resisting everything. Love is actually embracing everything. Yeah, that's the quality of love. So let's look at the Beauty and the Beast story, right? We know that in the story, the Beast was once a handsome prince 
the prince commits some kind of sin. I can't remember what it what it is exactly. He I think he mistreats a dinner guest at his party. And then the witch comes in and curses the beast or the prince and turns him into the beast. So his karmic sin creates his his trauma, right? The beast is meant to represent the guilt, the suppressed inner guilt of who I really am. I'm evil on the inside. And the witch made him see it on the outside. So he couldn't avoid it any longer, right? So now what does he do? He runs into the forest. He, he builds a castle or whatever and hides himself in the darkness of that dark forest in the castle for no one to ever see him ever again. So that's the shame, the guilt that we feel, the ego feels about all our past, all our mistakes, all our sin, all our shortcomings and the ways we don't measure up. That's the beast within us that we suppress and we avoid. So when beauty by karmic fate is led into the, the castle to look for her father who got lost there, she eventually meets the beast. And if you remember from the movie, what does the beast do when he's trying to show her around the castle and stuff? He's very angry, very irritable, and he's hiding his face from her, right? He, he wants to stay in the shadows. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want the beauty to see him. Self-denial, self-devaluation. So then as the story goes along, the, the love of, of beauty gradually softens the heart of the beast and brings out his light qualities, right? Slowly but surely, she brings out his kindness and his compassion and his love and his goodness. And she begins to fall in love with the light in the beast. So as the story goes on, the beast really becomes inwardly who he once was as the prince. Yeah, he becomes his light side, even though on the outside, he's still the, the hideous, ferocious beast. And so then eventually, you know, the whole Gaston situation comes and he has to, the beast basically sacrifices his life to save beauty. And that's the greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for another. So the beast sort of karmically purifies himself by laying down his life for another. And he atones for his sin that he was cursed for at the beginning of the story, right? With selfless service, selfless sacrifice. And so then what happens when beauty goes over to the beast? The most important part of that story is when she kisses the beast. And so let's look at what that kiss represents, because when we look at what it represents, we'll see the secret of how to accept our negative emotions. And remember, negative doesn't mean bad or wrong. We're, we're using these terms in the sense of their polarity, like in chemistry. So negative means inward moving, uh, absorbing, and positive means outward moving or radiating, right? So on the negative polarity of consciousness, we're trying to become like a black hole, cut off from the universe and just sucking everything into ourselves forever, taking and possessing everything we possibly can. That's the negative polarity. That's just the, the metaphysics of it. Nothing wrong with it. Totally equally valid, right? But the other side is the positive polarity, which is to become like a, a star that radiates. And that radiation of self is called positive in the sense of polarity, because it's the giving off of who we are. So in negative polarization, we're making our energy go inward. In positive polarization, we're making our energy go outward, becoming like a star, a sun that has infinite power to shine and express itself. So. 
to see how and why Beauty kisses the beast and then he gets transformed back into the prince will unlock the secret to how we do this to ourselves. So let me ask you this, if you've seen the story, does Belle kiss the beast because she knows that by doing so, he'll turn back into a handsome prince? Absolutely not, right? Does she kiss him because he has the potential to be a handsome prince? And he, just his potential is lovable enough. Nope. Here's the secret. You ready? Beauty kisses the beast as the beast, right? Be she loves him as he is, not for what he can be. She doesn't love, she didn't kiss him to get rid of the beast and get the prince, right? She had no ulterior motive. She loved him as the beast. She came to love him exactly as he is because she saw that he had goodness in him. On the outside, yeah, he may have still been a ferocious beast, but on the inside, she knew his light, his kindness, his goodness, his purity of heart, and she fell in love with his light. So this is the exact same way, you guys, we have to come to see our negative emotions, that there is light within everything. And so our negative emotions may feel hideous and beastly on the outside. They're painful, they're challenging, yes. But on the inside, they are pure, they are innocent. And by seeing the innocence in those emotions, seeing their light side, or we could say their light quality, we will finally be able to love them as they are. As long as we see our negative emotions as unwanted, painful, unlovable or unacceptable, we will never accept them. So that's why it's not enough to just try and not resist them. Because even just trying to not resist something is still implying it's awful, it's painful, I don't like it, I'm just trying to get through it. And that's not love. It's the first step to being able to love, but it's not love in and of itself. We have to go beyond that. And so because we are the truth, right? I am truth itself. I can only accept what is true. The God self in you will only accept the truth and it will never accept falsity. It will never accept an illusion. So if your negative emotions are still being weaponized by the ego to prove your lack, your need for attachments, your need for control, if that's what you think your emotions are speaking to, you will always resist them and they will always stay suppressed. You have to look past the surface layer, the beastly form the ego has disguised them in and see the light within them. You guys tracking with this? So let's see what their light qualities are. Yeah. What is the divine quality behind sadness, behind anger, behind fear? Let's look at each one of these three negative emotions that the ego weaponizes against us and see their light so that we can love their light and bring them back into wholeness. So we know, we know sadness signals the belief in lack, but let's just look at, let's look at these emotions like a child, you guys. Just how do we look at children who have sadness or anger or fear? Like a little two-year-old, three-year-old toddler. Do we judge children for being sad if their favorite toy is lost? We say, oh, they should know better than to be sad. There's no lack in the universe, Tommy, suck it up, you know? 
Like you would be the problem if you were thinking or talking to a toddler like that. <laughs> Everyone would be like, yo, dude, he, they, the baby doesn't have the capacity to understand what you're talking about. All the baby knows is I loved my toy, toy is gone, sadness. Isn't that innocent? Isn't that totally okay to be sad about losing something you love? So at the core of our sadness is just the desire to experience love. Isn't it? Why are you ever sad? Because you want something. Why do you want that thing? Because it'll give me happiness. What's happiness? Love. We just want to feel love. We want to experience love. And so if we lose something we associated love with, ego creates the belief that we've lost love. We are lacking love. And all lack beliefs are the belief that love is lacking. If you are aware of love, if you're experiencing love, there's no suffering. There's only happiness. There's only peace. So when we associate love with an object, with a person, with a form, with anything, and then we lose that thing, we will feel sadness because all we want is to experience love. I remember a time when I was probably seven or eight years old and I had one of those bouncy balls. My, my dad got me at Toys R Us. My dad was running errands and he would take me on his errands to the car shop and this and that. And I'm bouncing the bouncy ball everywhere, playing with it while he's doing his thing. And then he was trying to sort of joke around with me one moment. And he, he caught the ball that I was bouncing under his shoe and he started to press on it. And I was like, dad, no, I'm like screaming out, don't do it, dad. And he's not trying to squish it. He's just trying to play with me, right? Like I'm going to squish it but he accidentally squished it <laughs> and the ball exploded into a million rubber pieces before my eyes. I mean, I just broke down crying. It was like watching a loved one die or something. Uh, my bouncy ball, you, you destroyed it, dad. He felt so bad and so guilty. So he, he rushes back to Toys R Us to get me a new one. You know, like that's what we're all doing when we're sad. We just think we lost love. And so isn't just the pure quality of the desire to experience love, isn't that good and pure? Isn't it beautiful to desire love? Isn't that just our true nature shining through? We just, we're just wrongly convinced that we're lacking it. So behind all sadness is the light quality of our innate, unchangeable, eternal desire for love. It's our desire for God. We can't, we can't get rid of it. We can't escape it because love is what we are. So the moment we think we're lacking love, we have to desire love. And that desire is beautiful. So when you're depressed, when you feel sadness, when you feel lack, hopelessness, you name it, can you just sit with that feeling and go right into the heart of it and say, what is it I'm really truly sad about? Well, I just feel like there's no love in, inside of me. I feel like I've lost love, I'm lacking happiness and fulfillment in my life. I don't have the love that I want. And can we just say, ah, oh, it's so right and beautiful for you to desire love. I will sit here with you sadness as long as you want to express because I see you as beautiful. I see you as pure, like a child. Yeah, it just wants love. So can I love that part of me? Heck yeah, easy to love the part of me that wants love because love is good and love is pure. Now let's go to anger. Anger is a little bit more of a challenging one to see perhaps, but what is behind anger? What is the core of anger? Look at little children yet again. 
if a child has his favorite toy taken by another toddler and then the child gets angry at the toddler and starts calling him poo-poo brain or whatever, whatever children do when they're mad, um, we don't judge the toddler and say, you should never get angry when someone, we just take the two toddlers and sit them down and say, okay, Susie, do you see how it's not okay to steal other people's things? Okay, so give it back to Tommy. Okay, say you're sorry. We just walk them through it, right? We understand they don't have the capacity to not get angry when something of theirs gets taken. Why? Because the child is perceiving an injustice. That's it. The child is perceiving that some act of unrighteousness has happened. So this is ingrained in all of us, right? We all know right from wrong in our heart because we all know when we have been violated, when an injustice has been committed against me, I always know it. That's why no thief wants to be stolen from, no liar wants to be lied to, no murderer wants to be murdered, right? They wanna do it to everybody else, but not to themselves. So we all have this innate moral compass of what is right and what is wrong. And anger is really just our love of righteousness. Can you see that? To be angry at the core is really because you love the truth. You love what is right and good and moral and just. And so ego will weaponize that anger for injustice. But if we keep our attention on the love of righteousness, that anger really is, then ego cannot weaponize anger to make us commit unrighteousness. Does that make sense? If we keep our attention on the divine quality of that emotion, what is really truly behind this, then the ego can't weaponize it for evil. It can only weaponize our emotions for evil if we don't see the light in them then we'll be fully convinced, oh yes, this anger really is about attacking that person and getting vengeance, right? We'll think that anger is a tool for vengeance when we don't know that it's the love of righteousness. So when you're angry, can you take a deep breath in and say, I love righteousness and that is why I feel anger. An injustice has occurred and it is good and right and beautiful and pure to love what is good, to love what is righteous, to love justice. So can I just love my love of righteousness? That's a godly quality. That's something I can love. Easy, yeah? Then we finish off with fear. What is fear at the absolute core? Where, where does it come from? We said, if I believe I'm a body, then whatever happens to the body happens to me. So I have to fear all the possible outcomes, demises for the body. So fear, we, when we think the body's in danger in any way, we try to take control over life to keep our body safe. That's the, you know, um, survival part of the mind. But why don't we want harm to come to ourselves? Why not? Why is no harm better than harm? Well, because we love ourselves, right? We love ourselves and want to protect ourselves and keep ourselves safe from harm. So would anybody look at someone who protects their family, who has a passion to protect those whom they love and to keep those whom they love safe from harm? Would anyone look at someone like that and say, wow, that's so horrible of you and evil to want that. It's so bad to want to protect your loved ones. Of course not, right? We see that as literally the most virtuous quality that there is, is to love others and protect others. 
So why would it be wrong or evil to want to protect ourselves? Of course it isn't. It's just as noble and virtuous as protecting loved ones. So the reason we don't want harm to come to ourselves and we fear harm coming to ourselves is because we love ourselves. Right? We are self-love at the core. It's a part of ourselves we have forgotten and so the ego can weaponize it for fear. But all of these emotions you can see is they all have love at their core, don't they? Behind sadness is really just our desire to experience love. Behind anger is our love of righteousness. Righteousness is a quality of love. And then behind fear is our self-love, wanting to keep ourselves safe from harm and protect ourselves. That's also a loving quality. So when you're afraid, when you're anxious, can you go to the place in you that just wants to be safe and recognize that part of you and look at it with absolute acceptance and say, oh, it's so good that I want to protect myself. It's so good that I love myself enough to not want to bring harm upon myself. What a beautiful quality that is. I mean, if you don't have self-love, you can't love anybody. Yeah, self-love is the beginning of all self-empowerment. It's the beginning of all healing and all ability to be godly, right? So self-love is the most divine, beautiful quality we could ever cultivate. And that's what is behind fear. So if we keep our attention on the fact that this is really just my self-love, then ego can't weaponize it any longer, right? So all of these ways we can see the light side of these three negative emotions, that's the beauty's kiss. Can you see that? That's the loving that emotion for what it is, as it is in that moment without wanting to change it. We're not doing this to say, I'm gonna love you sadness, so I'll finally be rid of you. Gosh, I'm so sick of you. That's not love. We, we don't love our emotions or accept them so we can get rid of them. That's not loving. Beauty didn't kiss the beast to get rid of his hideous figure, right? She kissed him because she loved him as he is. And to her surprise, what happens? He literally floats into the air and radiant blinding beams of light shoot out of him. A lot of archetypal significance there. And he's transformed back into his true nature as the handsome prince. So when our motive of loving and accepting is pure, we are freed. That is where healing takes place. So feel free to begin adding this new um, approach to your three beliefs practice. This is also a big part of the catalyst journal, right? Identify which emotion is at play in this catalyst and then heal that emotion by loving it and accepting it. This is the step I want you guys to really start connecting with in step number three of the Catalyst Journal out of those four steps, when we're, when we're seeing the belief that's at work, forgiving it, loving that emotion as being pure and good and reflecting our light, then we've truly welcomed it in with open arms. And that's when healing can truly take place.